Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. This episode of Oppo is brought to you by FreshBooks, the easy-to-use cloud accounting software. Easily send customized invoices, track your expenses, send late payment reminders, keep your books in order. You'll save so much time. You can try FreshBooks for free for 30 days. Just go to freshbooks.com slash oppo and enter OPPO in the how did you hear about us section. That's freshbooks.com slash oppo and enter oppo in the how did you hear about us section. Today's show is brought to you by Audible. Audible has the best audiobook performances, the largest library, and the most exclusive content curated by and for Canadians. Start your 30-day trial and your first Audible book is free. Learn more at audible.ca slash Canada. That's audible.ca slash C-A-N-A-D-A. From Canada Land, this is Oppo. I'm Justin Ling, and I'm back in Edmonton this week, and oh my god, I am so tired. <laughs> Today on the show, I've got National Post columnist and all-around contrarian Colby Kosh. Thanks for coming on the show for whatever reason. I'm thrilled to be uh, sneaking into Jen Gerson's place to uh, shore up the Oppo enterprise. Today, we're going to have an all-around foreign policy debate, the likes of which this campaign have been sorely lacking, and talking to extra editor Erica Lenti about how LGBTQ issues have been essentially invisible in this campaign, and which party is the best friend of Dorothy. But first this week, we're just a week out from Election Day. Advanced polls are already opened and closed by the time you're listening to this, and there's no telling who exactly is going to come out with the most seats. Colby, did you vote yet? Uh, I'm a principled non-voter, a professional non-voter. Oh, you're committed. How long have you been non-voting? The decision to sort of not do it as a columnist, to preserve my Uh non-involvement in a complex psychological way, uh, that's probably a matter of five or six years. Oh, okay. I, I vote, but I vote for my local candidate, so I don't feel like an asshole. That makes a lot of sense. The problem I have is that I am uh, prone to write about almost any level of politics yeah. at any moment. Just for myself, I, I am persnickety about it. Okay. Anyway, the second superficial central committee approved election debate was held on Thursday in Ottawa. It was French, and in contrast with the House on Wheels on Fire of the first debate, the French dust-up was informative, well-moderated, and pleasantly thoughtful for the most part. Did you watch it? No. This is another thing I'm not doing is following the debates super closely. Okay, well, to fill you in, the debates on Justin Trudeau and Andrew Scheer bickering over their respective lack of plans to balance the budget. Elizabeth May repeated with some increasing urgency in her voice why everyone has to vote green to avoid a climate crisis. Maxime Bernier mostly sounded like the Mad Max of yesteryear, more concerned with the national debt than making up conspiracy theories about the UN and refugees. Jagmeet Singh took his Soak the Rich pitch, but did it in French, and looked pretty at ease doing it. 
Je travaille pour vous. And the bloc leader, Yves-Francois Blanchet, was at the center of it all, taking jams and making the sell for why anyone would vote bloc in this day and age. Also on Friday, before the long Thanksgiving Day weekend, the Conservative Party finally released their platform, and the NDP finally released their platform costing. And as you know, Colby, all good things are released on Friday before a long weekend. <laughs> That's a sign of trust. That's a sign of quality. <laughs> so we finally know how much all of this stuff is costing us. The Conservative Party would give us a $23 billion deficit next year, which would somewhat magically turn into a balanced budget in 2024. This is a responsible plan with a prudent framework. To get there, Scheer is mostly relying on reducing infrastructure spending, getting the Canada Revenue Agency to find blood from a stone, and cutting those dreaded other operating expenses. I've always said we spend too much money on other operating expenses. Other operating, it's very mysterious, and <laughs> we should stop it. We should stop other operating. <laughs> Other operating is at too good for too long, no more. The NDP, meanwhile, would bring the deficit to $33 billion a year, easing that down to $17 billion by 2023. That's mostly on the back of tax policies targeting the rich. But the NDP is also hoping to find $5 billion a year by cracking down on tax havens. Good luck with that. There's a reason they call them havens. Yeah. It's not a lot of, oh, you got me. Here's your money. And just to refresh your memory, the Greens won a $40 billion deficit next year, but a balanced budget by 2024, which is a hell of a curve. The Liberals would rack up $27 billion deficit this year, and that would get down to $21 billion by 2023 until God knows when. And all of these costings rely on the idea that the economy will grow forever, which of course it will. The rich will happily give us their money if we ask nicely enough, which of course they will. And the debt will be cheap forever, which obviously, of course it will. So I don't see any problem with these costings at all. Well, that's the interesting factor that uh, we don't think about it. Whether the great moderation, as the economists call it, could break down, we have a return to the double-digit interest rates of the late 70s, early 80s. The economy is growing for whatever reason. Everything is just relying on magic at, at this point in time. And I can only assume that will continue for eternity. And then in a story that is slowly loosening my grip on reality, rumors of Justin Trudeau's inglorious exit from the West Point Grey Academy have reached a fever pitch, with the fake news coming together with the right-wing press to continue advancing a story that there's a story here at all. The Buffalo Chronicle, a website which has published a number of made-up and untrue stories about the Trudeau government, has gotten into the game by making an assortment of baseless claims which have been shared tens of thousands of times. They've also sent a cease and desist letter to myself and Canada Land for calling them a made-up bullshit uh, fake news outlet. Um, and I just want them to know that we're taking that cease and desist letter very seriously. Justin, why are you making a toilet paper <laughs> motion right now? <laughs> Meanwhile, right-wing think tank and opinion site True North News also published a story relying on quotes from the West Point Grey yearbook to imply the Prime Minister is probably guilty of statutory rape, which is not true. And then the Prime Minister was asked about it after Thursday's debate. Ikean RNN, the 2001 yearbook from West Point Grey Academy says that you and convicted sex offender Christopher Ingvaldson made a young student's, quote, life at WPGA a lot more interesting slash amusing, end quote. How did you two keep her amused? We were teachers. Also after the debate, Scheer was asked about his role in peddling the conspiracy. You're accusing Mr. Trudeau of being a liar, and yet your campaign is dealing in rumor and innuendo. Why is that? Well, uh, first of all, asking someone to come clean about something is, uh, is entirely appropriate in, the, in, 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 uh, in politics. So this is undoubtedly the low point of the campaign. Somehow this Category 5 disaster of an election got worse. Does this make you sad at all for democracy, or are you just kind of enjoying watching the chaos? On this particular point, I have faith that the voters will probably see sense and realize that there's a, a lot of smoke here with no sign of fire. I mean, your treatment yeah. of it for Canada Land, i got to say, it was fantastic. You explored oh. Oh. how much this has been looked at 
how often it's been tackled, uh, how hard reporters have gone after the uh, private school in the past. And really, you, it's kind of a zero. I know people are disappointed. I know there's people out there who would love to get the goods on Justin. <laughs> so my, my concern is actually not that people don't vote liberal or whatever, because I don't, I don't give a shit. I don't think the people who believe this were going to vote liberal anyway. My concern is that these people go to the ballot box and suddenly the liberals win. And in that scenario, they're going to be very angry and convinced that a statutory rapist is in office, which is not true. What do they do then? Where does that anger go from there? Or alternatively, Andrew Scheer wins government and suddenly all the people who were furious about this are feeling emboldened. Like, I, I don't know. I just don't. This, this anger has to go somewhere. And finally this week, the CBC has decided to sue the Conservative Party over the party's use of the CBC's reporting in its campaign ads. The CBC has always threatened that they would do this to any party caught weaponizing the public broadcaster's footage. But starting off with the Conservative Party about a week before the election, whoo boy. What a decision that was. Initially, uh, Rosemary Barton and, and, and John Paul Tasker, two to CBC journalists, were named in the action and are now being removed because the CBC seemed to realize immediately how unbelievably well, stupid it is. This story is developing as we meet. Yes. I didn't realize they were being taken off as parties. Yeah, the, uh, I the, saw the CBC that, is filing to remove them I saw that parties. they hadn't been involved with that decision in the first place, which no. was itself baffling. Like, what is the CBC doing? Yeah, I'm fully supportive of, of filing this suit. Do it after the election. The conservative angle on this, uh, aside from this sort of uh, ill-advised making war, they're going to be honest for the next five years about how they're this super important public utility. Meanwhile, they're taking this incredibly narrow view of uh, fair use. Yeah. It's not even the political aspect of it that bugs me as much as that aspect. Like, you know, you get uh, shirty when uh, we start talking about your billion dollars a year that you get from us. And now you're uh, saying, oh, our precious footage. Oh, Yeah, it's, it's a totally fair point. This episode is brought to you by FreshBooks, the cloud accounting software that I use and I love. So why should you try FreshBooks? Well, you know what? There's so much stuff in here that, you know, I'm only just getting around to starting to use. I mean, for one, you can do time tracking, which is actually super useful. I mean, both from actually generating how much time you spent on something, but also keeping track of what you've been doing all week. You can add really detailed timetables to let your clients know how many hours you spend on a given thing and how much they owe you. That is extremely useful when you're doing like 40 different things, you have 40 different clients, and you need to keep track of what you're doing throughout your day. I know you think you can remember it, but surprise, you can't. That's why this tool is so useful. It can create this professional looking timetable that you can send to your employer and say, yeah, it really did take me eight hours to do this and you owe me money for eight hours. You can try FreshBooks for 30 days. All you have to do is go to freshbooks.com slash oppo and enter OPPO in the how did you hear about a section. That's freshbooks.com slash OPPO and enter oppo in the how did you hear about a section. Today's show is brought to you by Audible. Audible has the best audiobook performances, the largest library, and the most exclusive content curated by and for Canadians. On Audible, you can find titles like Red Notice by Bill Browder, friend of the show. This is one of the best books about Putin's Russia, and it tells you an enormous amount about the current geopolitical situation. The book is narrated by Adam Grupper, and you have to listen to this thing. The book tells the story about how Browder's young lawyer in Moscow, Sergei Magnitsky, ended up being arrested and beaten to death in his Russian jail cell. The story launches off a huge geopolitical campaign to bring Russia to heel and to finally force them to pay for many of the human rights abuses that they visited on their own citizens and on people abroad. The book is absolutely gripping. It had me crying in a bar outside Riga, Latvia. You need to listen to this thing. You can start your 30-day trial, and your first Audible book is free. 
Learn more at audible.ca slash Canada. That's audible.ca slash C-A-N-A-D-A. It's been more than a decade since Canada legalized gay marriage, but LGBTQ issues are arguably more important now than they've ever been. Access to healthcare for transgender people remains spotty, conversion therapy remains legal in parts of the country, men who have sex with men are still banned from donating blood, and the conservative leader remains coy about his own personal beliefs on homosexuality. And yet, given all that, queer issues in this election feel more like a hammer for Justin Trudeau to whack Andrew Scheer over the head with, more than an actual campaign issue. So, to break down what really matters, I'm joined by Erica Lenti, senior editor at Extra and author of the Rainbow Votes newsletter. Erica, thanks for joining us. Thanks so much for having me. So, in your most recent newsletter, you wrote, quote, For an election campaign that contained very little actual substance on LGBTQ2 issues, we sure did hear a lot about gay people. Why do you say that? I mean, we've heard a lot about queer folks and some sort of surface issues. Uh, But when it comes to actual issues that our communities have been telling us about, very few of them have come up. So in late August, we we saw liberal uh, Ralph Goodale tweet a video of conservative leader Andrew Scheer uh, and his comments from 2005 on the Civil Marriage Act in which he had this uh, long-winded speech in the House of Commons. Containing one of the worst metaphors I think I've ever heard. How many legs would a dog have if you counted the tail as a leg? The answer is just four. Just because you call a tail a leg doesn't make it a leg. If this bill passes, governments and individual Canadians will be forced to call a tail a leg. Nothing more. Yeah, I mean, it was it was pretty ridiculous. This was obviously pre-blackface controversy when the liberal strategy was to bring forward all of these social issues uh, that conservative candidates and the conservative leader, that they, they held these beliefs that probably progressive voters would not necessarily agree with. So so that came out, um, and there was this whole discussion around same-sex marriage, which the, the same-sex marriage debate has been over for a while now. Uh, and I think that most queer people um, that I've heard from, uh, you know, are... are writer R.M. Vaughn wrote about this, that no one in our communities is really super concerned that same-sex marriage is going to be reopened in any capacity. That's what's so frustrating about this. It feels like straight people using gay issues to hit other straight people over the head with over the objections of actual queer people. Absolutely, like, yeah. And it, it's infuriating. And, you know, it goes back to this, you know, uh, white savior thing the prime minister does all of the time, where he speaks for different communities and tells them what's good for them in order to beat his opponent. And it's almost so perfect that this election was the one that the blackface came up in, because it was just this perfect symbolism of the way in which the prime minister takes concerns from communities and just absolutely bastardizes them for political gain. Yeah. And I mean, we even saw him continue to do that in the English language debate. He did bring up Andrew Scheer's beliefs on same-sex marriage and abortion during that during that debate, regardless of the fact that, that, that all of this broke, you know, weeks earlier with his uh, with the blackface controversy. So, uh, you know, there was that there was the, the fact that Andrew Scheer has never marched in a pride parade, you know, at the end of uh, face to face with Rosemary Barton on CBC. That was like the big question. Like, why won't you just march in a pride parade? Which, frankly, I don't know any queer folks who are 
specifically waiting for Andrew Shear to march in a pride parade. Yeah, uh, I know lots of people who don't want him there. Yeah, precisely. And I mean, I don't think there's a whole lot of animosity there. It's sort of just this, like, you're not doing anything for us. Please don't come. I don't think there's a legitimate fear that if he's elected, Andrew Shear will significantly roll back rights for queer people. Whereas, you know, I think the CBC and the Liberal Party and a bunch of others have tried to make marching in the parade some sort of like litmus test for whether or not you're a real friend Dorothy. Mm-hmm. And I mean, it's it's interesting because there are a lot of folks from our communities who don't even necessarily think other leaders should march as well. Yeah. I mean, you know, Trudeau shows up all the time in his pink shirt, but then at the same time hasn't upheld certain promises and, for instance, to you know, end the blood ban or to nationally uh, ban conversion therapy and so on. Yeah, yeah. So let's talk about that. Let's talk about four years with, with Trudeau. You know, he uh, originally not only kind of ran on being super queer friendly, but also fundraised aggressively off of it um, and, and tried to make this, you know, sort of part of his branding. Um, and to his credit, I think he probably talked more about it in the last campaign than the other leaders did. Mm-hmm. Um, after four years, I mean, does he get high marks for, you know, what he's actually managed to do in office? I mean, he's done quite a bit, and I don't want to underplay the fact that he has created a specific role for Randy Boissonneau um, as special advisor to the PM on LGBTQ2 issues. Um, you know, he has provided some funding, um, but there are some key campaign promises. He campaigned on the, the fact that he was going to end the uh, blood ban for men who have sex with men. Oh, and did he ever not do that? (laughs) I spent so long getting angry at that. I'm still really angry, actually. The prime minister pledged to get rid of the blood ban entirely, calling it discriminatory, homophobic. And when he came into office, he managed to shorten the ban on how long you have to be celibate for. But in effect, it's still a blanket ban. And it's it's in uh, his platform once again this time around, which is also very frustrating. Even just in his first four years in office, the prime minister pledged to get rid of Section 159 of the Criminal Code, which, of course, is the discriminatory age of consent, mostly targeting gay men. Um, This section of the Criminal Code is is unconstitutional and it's archaic, but somehow the Prime Minister couldn't actually do it quickly. You know, it, ultimately they had to introduce three different bills to get rid of it. All the while they were leading fundraisers saying, "We're gonna we're gonna do it. Please give us money so we can you know repeal 159." It, it, again, it feels so much to people like this is uh, more of a, a stunt than a legitimate issue of moral concern for the Liberal Party. Mm-hmm. And there are still uh, laws on the books uh, that specifically target LGBTQ2 people. For instance, the indecent acts is still in the criminal code. Yeah, that's uh, right. And that includes like mutual masturbation between um, two consenting adults, specifically for queer folks. And, and the sex work laws are used disproportionately to target queer people, especially trans uh, people who work in the sex work industry. Uh, the prime minister promised to reform those. He hasn't done it, and it doesn't look like he's ever going to do it. There are a litany of things here where he's just sort of said the right things and then ultimately haven't hasn't fully done them. You know, his apology to um, civil servants for the queer purge in the military and in the, the public service, I think everyone acknowledges it was good, but it didn't extend to those who were arrested and convicted in the various bathhouse raids that existed across the country, even though that was within his power. I think that a lot of folks who are progressive, but not necessarily part of our communities, do look to Trudeau as someone who's done a really, really great job with LGBTQ2 rights. Um, again, he just shows up at Pride all the time. Um, you know, he, he showed up at a gay bar in Vancouver before Pride, which was just like <laughs> pretty ridiculous. I think progressive voters see that and they think, oh, well, you know, this is really great. He's yeah. showing up for, for the community. But 
when it comes to actual policy change, um, there's still so much that's left to be desired. One thing I think he does deserve a lot of credit for is the HIV non-disclosure guidelines that were drawn up by Jody Wilson-Raybould when she was still Justice Minister that, uh, my understanding is, they lay out a pretty thoughtful set of guidelines for uh, when and how police should charge somebody for HIV non-disclosure that do take into account kind of the modern science of it. Um, because, you know, people don't realize this, but people were being charged left, right, and center, you know, for aggravated assault or, or other criminal code charges because they were HIV positive and had sex with somebody who was not, even if the risk of transmission was virtually zero. Um and it was it was a it was a scourge on our community. Anyway, let's get to the platforms because I'm I, I actually you know for the four years that was ho hum. I, I think I think I'm weirdly encouraged by the amount of stuff that's in these platforms. I'm gonna go through them really quickly. But let's start with the Liberal Party. The Liberal Party is pledging 15 weeks of paid leave for families, including adoptive parents. So of course LGBTQ couples. Uh, they're pledging three million dollars a year to fund LGBTQ groups. They're pledging two million dollars for telephone lines and support lines for queer people. Uh, a criminal code ban on conversion therapy and an end finally to the blood ban. Um, that, that's actually, I like that there's dollar figures attached to it. You know, you mentioned funding for queer groups earlier, but I've talked to some queer organizations who have said that money is really scarce in this country if you want to run a pride organization uh, or a queer festival or any of those things. Absolutely. Yeah. I think that putting a dollar amount to it suggests a certain amount of support that is not just some lofty ambition. And I think as we go through uh, the other platforms, it's a lot of saying the right thing, but not necessarily having a plan to yeah. do the right thing. But I, I do want to talk about conversion therapy a bit. Yeah, um, okay. You know, that one sticks out like a sore thumb to me, just given that the Liberal Party had an opportunity to end this. Right. Um, they had an opportunity to to nationally ban conversion therapy in, in February. Uh, NDP uh, MP Sherry Benson, who is also queer, she brought forth this petition asking the, the government to ban uh, conversion therapy practice on minors uh, nationally. And the, the Liberal government took it and threw the onus back on provinces and territories, saying that it was a provincial and ter- territorial issue and not one for the federal government. Uh, and it's not. Like, it's th- this could easily be dealt with in the criminal code. I mean, I, you know, there shouldn't necessarily be, you know, huge jail time associated with this. But, you know, if you are running, especially camps or clinics to help cure people of their homosexuality, there, there is, I, I'm familiar with at least two different organizations who bring kids to like a camp in the woods and 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 you know hit them with bibles until the gay is gone mm-hmm. i mean there's there's no argument for why that should continue to exist those people should be fined until they stop and the fact that the liberals are bringing this up again in their platform during campaign time just sort of speaks to what we we're we were talking about earlier i think it's very important that we ban conversion therapy absolutely but this spoke to me again as something for progressive but not necessarily queer right. and trans voters yeah the blood ban's another example i mean you know they're saying now they're going to end the blood ban that has been four years in government saying they they don't have the power to end the blood ban when in fact they do. So do you have the power to do it or don't you? Like, make up your fucking mind. Yeah, and I mean, the science is there that this is unnecessarily yeah. discriminatory toward um, gay men uh, and trans folks as well. I've written a bunch about the actual science behind this. There is no threat to the public blood supply if this were to be done. You know, it's mostly a cost-saving measure and some fear of change. Okay, let's move on to the NDP. Um, the NDP, there's a couple of similar things. They want to end the blood ban, ban conversion therapy, but they also want to work with provinces to expand access to gender confirmation procedures. They want to establish a clear and dedicated path for LGBTQ refugees, and they want to add gender identity, expression, and sexual orientation to the Employment Equity Act. No dollar of figures that I'm seeing, but there's some other new stuff there that I think is interesting. Yeah, I mean, I especially want to talk about access to transition-related and gender-affirming procedures. I mean, for the longest time in Canada, uh, 
uh, trans folks who wanted to have bottom surgery would have to go to Montreal at the one clinic right. uh, that would do it. And the wait list there was uh, enormous. And for some time, that w- the, the procedures in Ontario were done out of Toronto with a doctor who was kind of notorious for not being super progressive in its thinking on mm-hmm. on, on actual gender confirmation surgery. Mm-hmm. I mean, we know that trans folks, their mental health, they deal with suicidality at a much higher rate than other folks. So giving access to these often life-saving procedures is a huge commitment, uh, something that we definitely need more of. So it's really great to see the NDP uh, committing to that. But again, as you said, no dollar signs attached to this, no plan necessarily um, how they're going to get this done. Okay, let's move on to the Green Party. The Green Party, again, some similar stuff, but there's a bit more. There's actually a whole entire section on LGBTQ issues that are a little wider than the other parties. They want to repeal Section 159 of the Criminal Code. I would note that it's already repealed, which is a weird commitment, but okay. Uh, they want to also delete any other laws that discriminate against LGBTQ people, especially those targeting intersexed people. They want to end the blood ban, of course, ban conversion therapy, okay? Fund more local programming, more healthcare support for trans and intersex people, and they want to make government buildings accessible to everyone. Also, they want to decriminalize sex work. So there's a lot more there. You know, it's, it's some of the same things as the NDP, but some of them are more, more expansive. A lot of language on, on intersex people, which I find interesting. I think it's really encouraging to see the Green Party put so much forth for our communities. They've always been fairly progressive on LGBTQ2 issues, but not always in other facets. I think it was really interesting to point out, again, yeah, intersex folks. No other party is really talking about intersex folks. Yeah, the laws make it so that you can perform uh, medical uh, procedures on intersex children, obviously without their consent, in mm-hmm. such a way that, that is problematic. The law as it is it kind of offers this blanket sort of allowance to quote-unquote fix intersex kids that I think it needs to be talked about. So this is good. I mean, this is good. And the decriminalizing sex work, you know, that is a big thing for the community uh, that other parties are terrified of. Like the NDP used to be a pro-sex work decriminalization party um, and have completely obliterated it from their platform. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think it's interesting to see the Greens be super progressive on, on these issues specifically, where you would expect, I think, the NDP to be a bit more progressive. And there is a bit of money attached to the Green platform, not, not a whole lot, but it's a little bit there. Uh, and finally, the Conservative Party. Obviously, there's no huge plank in the Conservative Party platform about LGBTQ issues, but there's a little bit there. I mean, it's mostly around refugees. The Conservative Party would commit to prioritizing LGBTQ refugees, regardless of gender identity and expression or HIV status, and they would make permanent the Rainbow Refugee Assistance Program. Obviously, they don't get full marks for this. They don't have an entire uh, you know plank on LGBTQ issues. Um, but I thought it was interesting that, that they would prioritize those refugees regardless of HIV status. Because currently, HIV status can absolutely be a barrier to being accepted to this country. Yeah, and it's interesting that they are probably one of the only parties, really, to talk a lot about refugees. Uh, I know the, the NDP talks a bit about it. A little bit in there, yeah. Yeah, but I think that we we know that LGBTQ2 folks um, who are seeking uh, refugee status in Canada, you know, there there's a lot at stake there. And so to see the Conservatives highlight them in the platform, um, given all of the weirdness around Andrew Scheer on the campaign trail, that that's really encouraging. Um, but a lot left to be desired, of course. There's nothing in there about the blood ban, nothing in there about conversion therapy, yeah. um, which seem like they should be easy wins. I think the platform has maybe four references, if I can recall, um, from my search to LGBT uh, folks yeah. in there. So very minimal. I really like the prioritization of queer refugees. That said, my, my read of this is to some degree the Conservative Party wants to prioritize queer refugees so that it can take fewer of other refugees. At a certain point, your refugee system has to bring in sort of everybody or else it's not a real refugee system. 
Okay, so I understand that Extra recently put out a survey to all of the parties. What inspired Extra to sort of move on this? I want to give credit, of course, to Faye Johnstone, um, who was a huge player in in doing this. Um, But Faye and I, we noticed that there was quite a few folks who are identifying. Uh, So in 2015, there were only, I believe, 20 out LGBTQ2 candidates. And this year, we found that there were 74 that we were able to identify. And and I want, want to say with the caveat, those are publicly out candidates. Yeah. Um, this is a huge number running across the country. Uh, and, and we wanted to know what, what issues they were hearing about from their constituents, what issues mattered to them, what inspired them to run. Uh, and we heard back from 44 of them, which was great. Uh, and we were able to hear a lot about what LGBTQ2 communities really wanted to put forth to uh, leaders in this in this election campaign. Give me some of the some of the highlights. I mean, you know, I'm I'm super encouraged by the fact that there are you know not just gay men running, but that there are lesbian women, there are queer people of color, there are trans people, there are two spirited people. You know, there's actually a real cross section, and from from all of the parties. Yeah. So of the 74 candidates that we were able to identify, there were 40 NDP candidates. They, uh, you know, no contest are the queerest party out there. (laughs) And then there are 18 um, from the Green Party, which is a number that's been a bit disputed. Um, They they say they have more. The Liberals had 10 out candidates. The Conservatives have four. And the People's Party, surprisingly, has two out candidates. They're always on the board. I mean, they're not the whitest party out there. And uh, they're not entirely straight. They are not. Yeah. (laughs) So then we we received 44 responses, as I said, Uh, about half the responses were from the NDP. I will say, though, there are people of color who are running and who responded to the to the survey we sent out. But three quarters of the responses we got were from white folks, Uh, majority identified as either gay or queer. Um, It's great that we saw at least five candidates identified as trans or non-binary, which is, I believe, uh, the first time. The last election, there was one uh, transgender candidate running for a, a minor party that you know didn't win these seats. I've been called out before for, for forgetting her, but she ran in, uh, in Newfoundland and Labrador. Uh, this time around, we have a significant number of trans candidates. Will any of them win, though? The short answer is probably not, because the NDP just has the, the majority of out LGBTQ2 candidates. Their, their numbers are not great. Most of them are running in historically conservative or liberal ridings. And those who are sort of primed to win their seat are predominantly white gay men. You know, so we've got great representation in terms of folks who are running, but that's not necessarily going to translate into great representation of MPs sitting in parliament. Uh, So there's still a lot of work to be done there. However, I will say it's really awesome to see so many folks from our communities. I know uh, we we chatted with Elizabeth May on Friday. Yeah, you put in a call to all the leaders, right, to sit down and talk with Extra. Yeah, yeah, and Elizabeth May is the only leader who thus far who's given us uh, an interview. Uh, so shame on all of the other leaders. <laughs> yeah, I mean, we still want to hear from them. There's still time. Uh, so so if any parties are listening, give us a call at Extra. We're waiting to talk to you. But but Elizabeth May did say that the Green Party specifically tried to recruit folks from our communities. And, and I think it's something that uh, a lot of the other parties can take cues from. I mean, you look at your local candidates. If, if you're undecided who to vote for, I mean, this could factor into your decision. I mean, by all means, help elect the first ever transgender uh, MP in Canada if they're a good candidate. But 
But also, you know, it feels like maybe we're one election behind that. I mean, it feels like next time that could finally be a reality. But talk to me about this. What's missing from the platform? So we we both asked candidates in the questionnaire uh, and Extra was also a media sponsor for town halls organized by um, LGBTQ2 community groups across Canada. One thing that came up a lot um, from those candidate surveys was homophobia and transphobia uh, and concern over growing stigma as far-right forces gain right. steam in Canada and North America more broadly. Um, there was one Green candidate named Sarah Cranick, um, and she's in Saskatchewan. She said where she's running, um, she's seen a rainbow flag torched in her riding. She has seen rainbow crosswalks vandalized. It's 2019. This is still happening. We need to talk about why it's happening and how we can continue to protect uh, these communities and, and continue to fight this stigma. Um, youth homelessness and poverty, LGBTQ2 youth are disproportionately homeless. And, and this is often because a lot of families who don't necessarily accept young folks when they come out leave their kids nowhere to go. Uh, and they, they often end up on the streets uh, or in shelters and, and transitional homes. Uh, and there's just not enough space. And so a lot of candidates identified that they want to see more funding to, to help improve the number of spaces for LGBTQ2 youth specifically. Seniors housing has also been part of that. There's a real concern that, you know, as we get on, there'll be a huge population of LGBTQ seniors with nowhere to live because they, they don't feel comfortable in some yep. other seniors' homes. You know, we actually hear a lot of stories about seniors going back in the closet um, when they reach retirement homes and nursing homes because they just don't feel safe. Um, specifically for trans elderly folks, the care that they need specifically um, is not always available. Also, I want to talk a bit about Indigenous folks. You know, the Truth and Reconciliation and, and the Missing and Murdered Indigenous Women and Girls Inquiry. That inquiry specifically mentioned two-spirit folks, um, but there's been very little talk about what role a government will will play to make sure that there is an emphasis and a, and a focus on two-spirit folks. It's been really difficult for Indigenous folks here in Canada to get a fair shake from the government. So in what ways will you know LGBTQ Indigenous folks and two-spirit folks be supported by a government? Uh, that, that needs to be addressed for sure. Erica Lenti, thank you so much for coming on. This has been illuminating. Thank you so much. This episode of Oppo is also brought to you by the new book, Highway of Tears by Jessica McDermott. For decades, Indigenous women and girls have gone missing or been found murdered along an isolated stretch of highway in northwestern British Columbia. The highway is what's known as the Highway of Tears. You may have heard of this story before, but journalist Jessica McDermott has done the meticulous investigation to show the devastating effects these tragedies have had on the victims and their families and their communities. And she paints a devastating picture of how systemic racism and a difference has created a climate where Indigenous women and girls are over-policed, yet under-protected. The book is told through interviews with those closest to the victims, their mothers and fathers, and their siblings and their friends. By talking to those most impacted by the case, McDermott provides an intimate first-hand account of their loss and their unflagging fight for justice. This book does an incredible job of examining the historically fraught social and cultural tensions between settlers and indigenous peoples in the region. McDermott also manages to link these cases to others across Canada. There's now an estimated 4,000 missing and murdered Indigenous women and girls, and McDermott does an incredible job of contextualizing those cases as more than a number. She actually looks at those cases as part of a broader examination of the undervaluing of Indigenous lives in the country. 
This book involved the families. It's not just a reporter digging through old cases. It's an intimate story about the lives of the missing and murdered indigenous women and girls and their families. There's also some incredible reporting in here about how the police investigated these cases, and McDermott manages to talk to a lot of the investigating officers themselves, which is something that's rarely covered. Highway of Tears by Jessica McDermott is now available wherever books are sold. I am back with National Post columnist and all-around contrarian Colby Kosh. So, Colby, we were supposed to have a foreign policy debate in this election. The Monk School, very, very loudly and in a kind of a whining tone, um, kept telling us how important it was that we have a foreign policy debate. Unfortunately, the prime minister skipped it, and, and so we, ha- we had no such debate. This election has been entirely devoid of any conversation about foreign policy. Meanwhile, it has been arguably one of the tumultuous times in the modern world um, in terms of, of kind of geopolitical strategy, you know, at least since the end of the Second World War. Um, and we have no idea what any of these parties would do in terms of Brexit, how to handle Donald Trump, um, the Turkish invasion of Kurdistan, China's toe-to-toe confrontation with Hong Kong, Taiwan, the South China Sea, you know, let's go development in, in, in parts of Africa, the, you know, the Golden Triangle in Central America. I can list just a thousand things that are pressing um, international concern. Think, did you even have Syria in there? I didn't even put Syria. I didn't even put <laughs> Russia in there. I mean, it matters a lot. And we have heard none of this. Is that because all of the leaders don't know what the fuck they're doing, or is there is really no votes to be won on foreign policy in a federal election? In terms of the tactical politics of it, there may be something to what you say. Maybe not safe ground for any of them. Justin Trudeau has gotten into trouble in the past when he wanders onto foreign policy territory and starts talking about China or visiting India. I'm sure that from Jagmeet Singh's standpoint, he wants to keep the focus on what he's going to do for Canadians and essentially the buffet of great gifts that his party has planned for us. Because I imagine that there is, uh, to some degree, a sort of side-eye look at the fact that a lot of people don't see him as Canadian. That's probably true. If he's on television every night talking about what he would do in the event of a Calistani independence referendum. Here's what I think about Iran. And that sucks. That's a bad bad thing that he has to think that way. So uh, to whose benefit is it to talk about foreign policy? The answer should be Andrew Scheer. You introduced me as the contrarian, and of course I have a judo move for this. (laughs) There's a case to be made that it's perfectly appropriate for us not to be talking about foreign policy. Why should it be a major topic in our election? I'll ask you that question. Now, I heard your introduction. You make the point, yes, there's a lot going on in the world. Uh, there's trouble spots everywhere. There's pressing international issues. The question is, what can we do about any of them? I think there's plenty of – listen, in a normal election, you know, if this were 2006, I would kind of say, listen, there's not a whole lot for Canada to do. Everything we do will be more or less similar to what America does or it will be in line with what the European Union's doing. But this is a very different context. Now you have America retreating from virtually everything. Europe is an absolute omni-shambles. And there's room for, you know, a significant block of countries to go out and do some things. You know, if Just Trudeau came out, or Andrew Scheer, came out on the campaign trail and said, I'm going to find allied countries who will work with me to put pressure on Turkey to stop the invasion of Kurdistan. Is that so outside the realm of possibility? I mean... Kurdistan's a hard problem. Trump took a lot of uh, trouble for his comment about how the Kurds didn't help us land in Normandy or whatever. I think the point he was trying to make is we don't have some kind of ancient pledge or relationship with the Kurds in the same way that the U.S. would with 
France or Britain or Canada. I understand why Trump's doing what he's doing. I think it's bad, but I understand it. If you're Canada, so, you know, the Harper government created a relationship with the Kurdistan regional government to train, equip, and help Kurdistan forces fight the Islamic State. And we worked with them to help create this autonomous region. And the conversation was always, we are a friend of the Kurdish people. In this scenario, how is it that we've completely thrown up our hands, again, including the Conservative Party, who has always made the point that a principled foreign policy that relies on defending our allies, especially those disadvantaged allies, is very important. Mm-hmm. How is it that there's just not a single, I mean, no conversation about limited sanctions, no conversations about sending more forces in there as a deterrence, nothing. There's not a single fucking word being said. Every party leader came out and said, I'm studying, the, I'm studying this situation closely and my, my advisors have briefed me. Like, nothing. It's hard for there to be sort of a Good Friday Agreement type peace process there that you would expect to have at hand to solve the situation. Yeah. Unless you've got two states negotiating. Well, that, that's kind of it. But that's really yeah. the innermost problem here is that you're not going to have a Kurdish state. The Kurds are not going to be able to build one unless they have air cover. Yeah, and I mean, a, a no-fly zone is something NATO could do. Yeah, but what the conservatives would say here, what the paleo-conservatives, the sort of hardcore and conservatives... And I would love to hear from them. We are, we are hearing from them because yeah. this is something that they like about Trump. He's not afraid to say, oh, we're, we're yeah. pulling the U.S. out of this region. Because the traditional answer to this, this no-fly zone, this Kurdish quasi-state... The U.S. would have to be the guarantor of it for the next 100 years, right? Well, and that's fine. To some degree, if the U.S. wants to be an isolationist government, if Trump wanted to do this, that, that's fine. Like, I, I think it was too quick. Fine. Why can't someone else step up? Why are we so neutered to think that only America can play this role? It's an interesting point, but who wants to do it? Do we really want to do it? Well, again, this is the thing that I would really like to hear in a Canadian federal election. I would like someone to say... I think we should do it. And someone else say, I don't think we should. And I would like to hear that back and forth. First thing you're going to tell you is that kind of ability to establish a no-fly zone and garrison a place the way that the Americans do. Well, we're sort of talking about quintupling the defense budget. Sorry. All this other stuff we want to give you. Oh, we were thinking about pharmacare. Forget pharmacare. Like, yeah. you're going to have to, I mean, stuff like the pension age is going to have to come back up. But even even if it's not a full-force deployment to northern Syria, okay, talk to me about using the Magnitsky Act to sanction individual members of the Turkish regime. Let's also not forget that the Turkish government has been jailing Kurdish politicians who rightfully won yes. their seats in Turkey for years, yes. and we have been fucking silent. Meanwhile, the Trudeau government has been meeting with Erdogan to compliment him on how good he's dealing with refugees. Like, there is a fecklessness by this government that is, is actually quite galling, and I would like to to hear, I think it would be Andrew Scheer. I would like to hear Andrew Scheer call him out on that. I agree with what you're saying. And this, we, if we're, suddenly we're talking about Hong Kong, we're talking yeah. about China, the whole question of moral pressure and individual actions of this kind comes into it. Let's talk about Hong Kong and China, because this is the other half. I mean, in terms of what's at stake in Hong Kong and the one we always forget, Taiwan, this is massive. Like, you know, if something does go horribly wrong in either place, Canada will be involved in some way, shape, or form. And, you know, what that will look like, I would like to hear the parties give us their well, their sort of, You're sort of looking five steps ahead. I mean, this Hong Kong thing is, it's a very long game. And that's the case where there's no talk of military intervention. So it's the question of what we can do about it is very limited. You have to look for opportunities to influence China morally in things like the Winter Olympics that are coming up there in 2022. There's a whole bunch of things we can do now. You know, but is that know. is that foreign policy? I mean, we could sit here and talk about cute little ideas like this that are individual, tactical. We're not really talking about it on the foreign policy level. 
like what are Canada's great principles of foreign policy? But I, I, I just don't think we're necessarily in a position to have that conversation. But I think we, I think we have to have that. So, you know, what do you actually expect from well, a debate like well, this? So, in the la- in the last campaign, Justin Trudeau had like zero expectations going into the Monk foreign policy debate. Right? He got on stage, kept his pants on, everyone gave him full marks, mm-hmm. and he said a couple of things, and those few things were largely true of his government. You know, he didn't end up dropping sanctions on Russia. He didn't end up fully pulling out of the mission against ISIS. He he was sort of very fuzzy on a bunch of other things. And we saw everywhere where he was fuzzy, he seemed to have zero rudder when he was actually dealing with in government. He didn't know how to deal with China when they detained two citizens or when he was ordered to extradite Meng Wanzhou. You know, he didn't know what he was doing when Saudi Arabia started a PR campaign against Canada for calling out its human rights abuse. Yeah, don't we have a foreign service for that sort of thing? Well, you'd think so. And, and Christia Freeland, I think, is his God's gift. Have they released our uh, detainees yet? No. And well, this the thing is that, you know, I don't think they get very good marks on their foreign policy. It has been um, an amalgus blob without any sort of principle or thought behind it. So to the degree that you have foreign policy principles and to the degree that you're talking about it in election, it kind of ends up tying your hands in the real world. That might be the real problem. It might be advantageous to us for the purposes of diplomacy and trade if we don't talk about it in elections. Being a democracy is, in some ways, a strategic disadvantage in dealing with countries like China. Sure. And so, I hate to say it, it sounds very undemocratic and terrible, but maybe that is the wisest thing, is to shut up about foreign policy in the election and let whoever governs govern. But I think you can talk about principles. I don't need necessarily to hear Andrew Scheer say, if elected, I'm going to send, I don't know, gas masks to every Hong Kong protester. Um, <laughs> you know, when Stephen Harper used to run, he would never get into overt specifics, but he would get up and say, listen, you know, his favorite line was, we're not going to go along to get along. We believe in multilateralism, but not just useless internationalism. We believe in, you know, accosting our friends when they behave badly and really thumping our enemies when they behave worse. Um, and that's what he did in government. There's a certain sweetness in your voice when you yes. talk about Harper on that on that particular front. We, we got good returns on the limited engagements we had. It sounds to me like what you want is speech making. You're upset that somebody is not making a very eloquent speech about these Because well, things, when you do make issues. that speech, I mean, you get a mandate to go do it. But I feel like your uh, point of view, which is you kind of say nothing and, and see what happens, leaves this rudderless system. Because, you know, the Trudeau government hasn't had a fucking clue what it wants to do on the world stage. It leaves us with an unprincipled system. Yes. Do we want the opposite? Yes. Because when we take a... And it's not a question of not having principles. It's a question of obtruding them and sort of trying to act as this middle power. This fantasy that our moral superiority is going to rub off on these inferior countries. I think there's two versions of the middle power. One is just do the middling thing at all times, which is the very liberal approach. Or it's we have limited power, so let's use it efficiently and thoughtfully. And that used to be the conservative MO, and I don't think it is anymore. Meanwhile, the NDP used to be this dovish... Everyone's our friend. And I, I don't even see that anymore. Do they still want to take us out of NATO? Uh, no. I think the Greens have now taken up that mantle, but they don't want to get us out. They want to reduce our NATO contribution, I think. Even further. Yes. <laughs> well, we just increased it. We're at 1.4% now, which is not bad. The other thing is, to what degree does this immediately become an IQ test? This is another quality of foreign policy, quote-unquote, debate in elections. It very quickly becomes the greatest bonanza for gotcha journalism that has ever existed. Once you get politicians talking about this stuff, it becomes geography quiz time, right? If somebody uh, pronounces uh, Bashkortostan incorrectly (laughs) or or can't find, uh, you know, I'll find the Uzbeks on a map. And suddenly, you know, if somebody blows it, we chortle at them. That's fine with me. It's mostly an opportunity for them to fail. Politicians don't like that, and I'm not sure it serves any useful 
purpose. We're I don't, not, I don't we're think not necessarily yeah. going to get the best foreign policy decision making from the guy who knows the fucking atlas the most completely. In, in an ideal world, we would take about 75% of the time we've spent reiterating, relitigating Andrew Scheer's position on abortion and dedicate it to like, just some limited discussion about any of this stuff that I would find really fascinating. So here's my proposal. Hear me out. What's your idea, Justin? The last week of the campaign is just foreign policy. I mean, we weren't talking about anything else oh more God. important. <laughs> you, haven't, you haven't heard a single word I've said. <laughs> That's it for Apple this week, but stay tuned for Friday. We're going to have an election special before you go vote. Or if you've already voted in advance, well, then just enjoy the show. We're also going to have a hungover special on Tuesday morning where we're going to break down everything that happened the night before. I will be at some kind of victory slash defeat party, and I will be bringing you all the sadness and or joy. Let us know what you think. Email oppo at candlelandshow.com or find us on Twitter and Facebook at oppocast. This episode was produced by Laura Howells. Our managing editor is Kevin Sexton. And the theme music is by Nathan Burley. This week, we gave both Colby and Erica the last word. Those words are better representation. Rhinoceros. For the party. Definitely.